0: Welcome to Everything's Not Black and White with your hosts, Lala and Brian. Hey,
1: everybody. Welcome to today's episode. We are very excited for our special guest who is joining us today. You know, the world as we know it uh, has a lot of safety challenges, both physical safety and around digital safety. So a lot of people are doing things online, you got your bank accounts online, you got personal information online, and you're always in social media. But just how safe is that digital world? So our next guest is Stephanie Damas, And I probably pronounced your name right. It's Damas DeMoss. Tell me, Stephanie.
2: Don't. Yeah,
1: Domas. Domas. I'm glad. See, yay. I learned how to say it right. <laughs> but Stephanie and I met when we did a speaker's um, engagement together. And Stephanie has a lot of passion around cybersecurity and how to protect your data online. And she's going to give us some tips and tricks and give us a little bit of the background of how she even got involved with that. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, them, theys, uses, please welcome Stephanie Domas to the ENBW podcast. Welcome, Stephanie. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So we're excited to have you too, you know, we've been watching a lot of things happen or in the news and around the news and you know, it's especially generational of how people, you know, handle data, data privacy, um, and access to data online. So I really think there's a lot of, of misinformation out there. So I would love for you if you could kind of just give us a little bit of who you are and then level set some of our audience around what exactly is cybersecurity.
2: So my name's Stephanie Gilmas. And I have the privilege of being the chief security technology strategist at Intel. And most people recognize the name Intel from the little sticker on their laptop that says Intel Inside. So Intel is a semiconductor manufacturer. We make processors, graphic cards, memory, basically all the little pieces of silicon that go and power about 80% of the world's electronics uh, run on Intel. So my role is I basically lead building the strategies of what security technologies we should be putting in all of our different products. And that's focused on both how do we protect our products, right? We want our products to be secure. But then how do we, as the fundamental hardware layer, provide security capabilities to the rest of the system? So think really complex things that software does. A lot of that requires advanced support and the hardware to do it. And so I, my job is also to understand and predict these future trends to know, well, what what will we need for security in the future? And how can I accelerate that and support it at the hardware layer? The second piece that you asked about, about what does security mean? And there's actually two, for, <laughs> two words I wanna define because they're often confused with each other and that's security and privacy. So security is both the processes and the tools that allow you to essentially enforce rules in a digital system, whether that's saying, you know, this file can only be accessed by people granted permission, or this data shall be encrypted. These are tools and processes that allow something to happen, right? But cybersecurity in and of itself doesn't have any notion of, well, who should access it, right? Who from an ethical perspective or regulatory perspective can access these things or should be able to modify them. That's where privacy comes in. So privacy is actually, I think of it as the outcome of cybersecurity. So privacy is leveraging all those security controls and processes to then decide, well, what's the right thing here? Who should access this? So saying, well, Stephanie should be able to access her medical history. Her doctor should be able to access it, but her neighbors should not. Right, that's all a notion of privacy, but cybersecurity is what allows privacy to happen, right? Cybersecurity is the tools that privacy uses to make those rules come true and to protect things like your data from the people who shouldn't have them. So mm-hmm. I wanted to define those two because they're often used interchangeably and they actually don't mean the same thing, though they are obviously heavily related to each other.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you made that distinction because I think they do, people kind of mix the two of them together a lot. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that's really good for you to kind of help level set what those two differences are. So I also, like, how did you get involved with this work? Like, like where kind of give us a little bit of your, your background and, and what got you so passionate about this.
2: I am so fortunate to have been able to follow a career that really followed a passion of mine. And so I have always been what I call a puzzler. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to know how stuff worked and why it worked. So I was the person taking apart our VCR, tearing apart my parents' telephone. I'm sure much chagrin, <laughs> but I wanted to understand how it worked. And so the same thing happened with computers. Early on, on our first computer, I wanted to understand how it worked, right? So I took it apart, I wanted to build my own, right? So I started building my own computers from a very young age as a, as a way to help me learn how they worked. And then on top of that, then I started playing video games on computers. And I would download these cheats, right? I shouldn't admit this, but i download cheats, right? Ways that I could cheat at these video games. And I kept wondering, how do people do this, right? How are they figuring out a way to manipulate the game. And so that's how it really that first thread of how does cybersecurity work? And so I started pulling that. So my initial thing was trying to figure out how to cheat at video games, right? And I wanted to understand how people cheat at video games. And so that all started with me then trying to figure out, okay, well, people cheat at video games because they have figured out how... The assembly code works, right? What the processor's doing. And then because they figured out what it's doing, they figured out how to manipulate it. And mm-hmm. so I kept teaching myself these things, right? I taught myself how to communicate with processors, right? And then how to what we call reverse engineering, right? How to take apart a software application that somebody else wrote. And then, you know, you can use that knowledge for good to do defense or you can use it for offensive reasons to develop things like video game cheats. So for the first half of my career, I was what's called an offensive security researcher or an ethical hacker, and I worked for the DOD, um, essentially uh, taking apart things, looking for vulnerabilities in them. And that all started because I, just as a hobby, uh, tried to do it on video games and learned that that was actually a really valuable and marketable skill set and found a job that allowed me to continue to just dive deeper down the rabbit hole and learn even more about how computers work and how you can use that knowledge to both defend them and manipulate
0: them. Online, you see a lot lot of times on YouTube, you see these uh, ethical hackers that will go in with these scammers and get them basically to give them their money out of their account instead of the other way around because a lot of these scammers are uh, taking a lot of elderly people's money and whatnot, and it's nice to see them flip the script And I I was curious, when it comes to companies, how is cybersecurity handled in most companies to kind of avoid that kind of uh, an attack?
2: Yeah, so the type of attack that you're typically talking about is one called uh, social engineering. Mm -hmm. So leveraging, you know, essentially manipulation at a personal level, right? Trying to convince someone to do something that they're not supposed to do. If you trace back most breaches that happen and i can't remember the exact statistics i want to say something like 70 percent of breaches it's definitely more than half are the result of a person doing the wrong thing so with all of the fancy technology and tools we have in place most breaches are still caused by a person clicking the wrong thing sending the wrong person a file sometimes it's just they made a mistake um, but sometimes it's also because they were social engineered into doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of a lot of security tools go in place to try and prevent things like that from happening, to try and make it harder for you to make a mistake. Now, if you're malicious in your tent, obviously, it's a little harder to prevent you from doing that. But to try and prevent people from just simply making a mistake. There's a lot of tools just doing behavioral analysis and trying to understand, like, this is not something this person normally does. Let's throw an alert about that. This is not a time that this person normally works. and Why are they accessing this file? And so a lot of it comes down to also just education of the individual just people, right? General cybersecurity education. I think there is a very real opportunity for uh, education systems that everybody should have a base understanding of cybersecurity, mm-hmm. not just cybersecurity professionals. Right. When you get into a professional workplace, you know they have the annual security trainings that a lot of people take, but not everyone works in a setting where they're getting that cybersecurity training. And honestly, a lot you can do a lot wrong before you get into you know professional setting in your late twenties. Right. Um, and so I would love to see our education system. I'm totally rambling on this answer, but I would love to see our education system make cybersecurity just one of those things that everybody gets at least some dose of. So they know how to protect themselves, right? They know how to watch for these bad links, but they shouldn't click. And the scammers who are trying to convince you to do something uh, that you shouldn't be doing.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree with you on that I always think there's so many basic things that we should do in the education system like even budgeting and finances and those kind of things to get people ready to be adults right so you know there's always Mm -hmm. these big things and you know digital the online and internet is going to be with us for the rest of our lives and then some so people need to know how to navigate through those things safely you know and and to kind of reduce any risk and harm to them personally you know obviously but also professionally as they like you said when go into the the workplace. So I'm curious, because you know you're this technologist that looks at the different ways of getting, you know, security on systems and such. Like, what are some of the typical measures that most companies put in place to promote more security and to protect data and information?
2: So there's a lot of different techniques that companies use. But I mentioned, you know, at the end of the day, it still comes down to the person. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But some of the more common techniques. So I mentioned things like behavioral analysis. There are a lot of tools out there that try to watch the behavior of users. And again, not from a malicious and they're not trying to invade your privacy, but if you think of your average day and what you do on a computer, either for personal or in your professional life, it's a lot of the same, right? I access the same things. I use Outlook a lot, right? I go to the same websites to look up preferences, so these behavioral analysis can be really powerful to see when you do something that's very atypical, even in my personal life, right? When I go to work, I go to the same websites, right, to check news. Then I go watch something stupid on YouTube, right? Then it's <laughs> all the same, right? My routine is very, uh, is very set, right? I'm a creature of habit. And most people are. So behavioral type techniques are really interesting as a way to see like that's not what that person normally does. And remember, the person's kind of also a vague term, right? It's that that account doesn't normally do that right the person may not be doing anything they could be asleep but if somebody has hijacked their account then there's the rules based thing so rules will always be a part of it where you just have strict rules saying like this person doesn't need access to this stuff right and so just a hard stop right brick wall they cannot access these types of files they cannot access these resources it's hard to set up rigid rules though you'll find there's only so much boundary you can put around something before you make it hard for people to do their job. So you can set up some rules, and so rules will always be a part of security, but they always have to have a bunch of holes poked in them, so they end up sort of looking... People call it, like, you know, a firewall maybe, but in truth, it's a firewall with Swiss cheese holes in it because there's always exceptions that you need to make, and that's part of the problem. It makes it hard to defend when you have to keep poking holes in your wall. But at the end of the day, people need to do their jobs.
0: You mentioned something interesting about just going to the sites that you always go to and you you have a a pattern. Uh, You mentioned YouTube and and lately here in the news, TikTok has been one of the uh, major talking points. Do you have any insight to why TikTok out of all the social media is the one that uh, seems like political leadership is kind of putting a barrier on?
2: have a ton of insight into that i i don't tend to follow that too much i have heard that there is privacy concerns over um like ownership and where information is owned by tiktok i'm not sure if you guys know any more about that i don't believe tiktok is an american company and that that has led to some concerns over there being just a lot of american data on that yeah. yeah. I was just that, curious. Seems like,
0: it? Yeah. yeah, it just seems like even with, uh, even American owned companies, yes, TikTok, I believe is a China owned company, but even with a lot of America owned companies, we literally give so many rights away to allow people to have access to our phone, our pictures, our locations. <laughs> like, like what is, I was just curious if you understood or knew why the, you know, yeah. when another country does it, why it's such a, an issue. So
2: there's, a, there's kind of a couple of reasons for that. One is data sovereignty laws, which this is going to get nerdy for a second here, but the data sovereignty laws are specifically defining the way a citizen's data of a certain country should be treated. So a U.S. citizen has certain rights associated with their data that if your data leaves U.S. borders, right, it's stored in a data center in another country. Data sovereignty says that treated with the same, you know, American laws, right? I'm a U.S. citizen, even though my data left. That causes a lot of uh, difficulty because then once your data really leaves the country, it's hard to enforce any kind of like, well, I'm a U.S. citizen, right? I, just because my data is in China doesn't mean it should be treated with Chinese regulations, which right. are not heavily on the privacy side. You know, the U.S. has a lot of very uh, privacy-heavy heavily reg- heavy regulations, so does Europe. Um, China is historically known for not having uh, the same emphasis on privacy, So that's where people get kind of uh, squirrely about once data of U.S. citizens leaves the country and goes to a country that does not have as big of an emphasis on privacy and not an emphasis on protecting the data of U.S. citizens, that that starts to become a real concern. And we've started to see the emergence of really advanced things like AI. People don't really understand the value of a lot of what they're posting, right? Videos have... Mm -hmm detailed you can see how buildings are laid out perhaps in the background you could see security systems and somebody just walking around the mall right there's a tremendous amount that could potentially be gained from harvesting all of that information Mm -hmm. and for nefarious purposes right maybe you happen to walk by and there's a blank check from your bank accounts and in the background of one of your videos and you think nothing of it right but an AI could find that and in in, like, America, for example, or in GDPR, in Europe, privacy and de-identification of any kind of video footage being used to train AI is very strict, right? They all have to be de-identified before they can be used for any kind of model training, right? That doesn't exist in every country.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. There's so it's many... deep. <laughs> yeah, there's so many things uh, that <laughs> happened in the background that we don't even know of, you know, and I, it was, it's so funny that you talk about that because... Um, I read it in as a 2019 Pew survey that said only 9% of Americans actually read the privacy policies when they log into apps um, and using certain, you know, different technology tools. And I'm like, it's only 9%. I means 91% of us don't read it. And like, should we be reading it? And I guess the better yet question is, would anything change if we did read it? Because we'd still have to accept it to be able to use the apps, Right.
2: Yeah, the truth is, if you read it, you probably wouldn't understand it. I probably wouldn't even understand. It. I know security because the legalese are so confusing. But the good thing is, cybersecurity in modern, you know, most modern computing systems. So, think I have an iPhone, for an example. When I install an app, it asks me, you know, do you want to grant this app permission? to access your contacts? Like, do you want to grant this app permission to access your photos? So regardless of what's in that UA, I still have the right of refusal to allow that app to access things I should or should not. But that's also sort of the the problem um, is a lot of people don't think before they grant those access, right? The tools are getting better. Um, Most modern browsers, right? Chrome OS, I use Brave, um, which is a very privacy-focused browser, they give you these options, right? To say, do you want this site to track you? But if you say yes, right, you've you've given away the keys to the kingdom, right? If I install a silly app and it says do you want to let this app extra contacts, and I say yes, well, <laughs> that was that was my bad choice, right? right. But that's the that's a lot of what you see nowadays is that disregard for privacy and people saying, well, I want to play this app, so yes right? You can have access to all of my data. Like, what do I if You have my contacts list. So you see the tools. This is the privacy and security difference, right? So the cybersecurity is getting better in the sense that we're providing you tools to make that decision, but people aren't making informed decisions mm. or they're deciding that the trade-off is, is worth it, right? Facebook is a huge example of this where you'll see all these giveaways, right? And the, the, the way you enter the giveaway, right, is you hit a thing saying, I agree to share like all of my profile data with this company yeah. and people enter this contest, right? <laughs> and it, it blows my mind, right? That they're so uh, not understanding the value of privacy, right? That they are violating their own privacy, but it's their choice, right? Facebook is giving them the choice and they are choosing that the, you know, one in a million shot. I went in an iPad that probably doesn't exist. Right. Fine. Right. Take all my data. So we see cybersecurity tools getting better, but that's where the education piece I mentioned earlier is we don't see people making those informed decisions or understanding that what you just clicked gave all of your personal data to a company. So the tools are there, but people aren't making the right choices to protect their data.
0: When, when you say data, does that also include your voice, your images you've had in your phone, your uh, audio? I mean, is it like data just mean incorporate anything that goes in and out of that phone whether it's actually physically on there?
2: There's no uh like your super permission like that on a phone. Typically what you'll you'll see access is so photos that you've already taken, right? Mm-hmm. So you'll and this is an iPhone, right? But getting access to say, you know, do you want this to have access to your photos? In which case any anything you've recorded in your photos, video. If you hit yes, then they have access to that. And then, do you want them to access your camera is usually a separate permission, and that would allow them to grab the live footage of, you know, live capture.
0: Yeah, I was just curious, I had, a, I had an instant where we were hanging out with some friends and uh, they both work out, and they were talking about some kind of protein cereal or something. I've never even heard of it before. And then I got home and all of a sudden this protein cereal was in my feed. Like I didn't <laughs> upload anything. I didn't, you know, I didn't talk about it. It was actually someone else talking about it. But yeah, here it is in my feed. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, did I give, is the possibility of me of giving a, an app permission to listen to my conversations?
2: Do you have any of the voice assistant assistants like Siri or Alexa turned on?
0: Uh, Probably. Yep.
2: So those things, the way they work, the way when you say, hey, Siri, and it knows is because it's literally always listening to you. Yes.
0: Yeah. Interesting, yeah,
2: and that's how it knows when you say hey Siri. Now, there's a lot of privacy advancements that have happened in those where some people found it really helpful, right? That you might have been talking about a Bahamas cruise and then you start getting ads for Bahamas cruise. Like, some people actually love that. Mm. Um, I find that immensely creepy, right? So, I have all <laughs> of those things turned off.
0: <laughs> I, I find it. I really find it creepy, too, because like when I was going through cancer and I had uh, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, my data was leading all these lymphoma uh, lawyers, you know, for Roundup to advertise to me. So I'm already dealing with the idea that I hate cancer. But now I have lawyers trying to, well, your cancer has a cause and this they did this and you should sue them. And it, it became overwhelming because I was emotionally just trying to deal with the ideal cancer, let alone outside influences.
2: That's just how this data works, you know, In some these marketing campaigns and it, it, something called cookies, I'm mm-hmm. trying not to get too nerdy with everyone. But oh, uh, again, some people find this really convenient, right, that I could Google a Bahamas cruise and then for the next three weeks, every website I go to shows me ads about bahamas cruises right and yeah. and sometimes that's helpful right i find a cruise at a sweet discount right that i didn't know about and i got the sale because an ad popped up for me so it has some level of convenience but it also has obviously a huge level of creepy and mm-hmm. um stuff like that is very interesting because some people in my family you know i've tried to turn on all of these privacy settings for my family and i told them to use you know, i mentioned brave browser right uh like the brave browser specifically designed to not track cookies, right? So you don't get any of that, right? It's not tracking across the internet. It's main value proposition is privacy. It was literally designed with privacy in mind so it doesn't track you at all. So I use a browser called Brave, right? But I can't get anyone in my family to use it because they like that, right? They like that they were researching uh, you know, fancy dresses and now they get ads for fancy dresses. Um,
0: That's so interesting. (laughs)
2: Right. You know, it terrifies me.
0: Yeah. Wherever there's going to be money spent, people are going to uh, absolutely sell your information.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. So, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, kind of the routine, kind of the behavioral with the routine uh, kind of creature of habit work plus the, the rules piece. But I'm curious. um A recent McKinsey survey said that 85% of respondents said it's important for companies to be transparent about their digital trust policies. And even last week, uh, T-Mobile announced they had a data breach that occurred back in November and impacted over 37 million of their customers' data. Like, what are some of the rules are there to reporting breaches and then what accountability um, it's put on these companies to improve systems.
2: So the rules can vary a lot depending on the type of data that potentially have access. So if there was potential uh, like HIPAA information, so personal or private information, um, then all of the HIPAA rules uh, come into play. Right. The problem often is it takes a really long time to figure out that you actually had a breach and then to figure out what was accessed or what happened. So in that case, and, you know, I'm not defending their their slow response. I, I don't have enough detail on there. But what happens a lot of times is you start to see a you know, little alert here and there, and maybe this is odd behavior. And the average time it takes to identify that a breach has happened is a year.
1: Oh, wow. Oh, that's a long
2: time. And because a good attacker, right, can just hide in the noise. Uh, It's it's really hard. So once you think something's wrong, that forensics and triaging can be really intense and take months of time. And at the end of it, it may may literally be nothing. Um, And so a lot of triage ends in false alarms. And then sometimes it ends in, well, still not sure, right? So you keep diving deeper. So that forensics and triage, before you can actually confirm that something actually happened, or, what actually happened so that you can go and file the right um, like breach reports, right? But do you know personal information was attacked, or do you know the passwords were stolen? That type of forensics is insanely difficult um, and can take months to do. So, typically, you won't hear about breach reports either publicly or through regulatory channels until they've been able to complete that forensics because they, realize they don't they don't know what they're reporting mm. um, they don't know if there was a breach and they don't know what was taken and they don't know if there's a problem um, until they've completed at least a substantial amount of that triage and so usually you'll get the breach reports then once once they know something's happened because that's when all those legal timelines come into play a lot of even just supplier timelines, right? I used to, before Intel, right? I worked a lot in the medical device and healthcare space. And in that space, there's um, generally suppliers and supplier agreements. You will have a 30 day window put into the supplier agreement saying, if you become aware of a breach, right? in your product that could affect me, you have 30 days to tell me. Mm. Um, But that all comes back to, you have to be able to know that it is once you like officially call it a breach, right? Once you've done enough forensics to say this is a breach, uh, then all those timelines kick in. But that initial forensics work, when you're not sure yet, can take a really long time.
1: Mm. Wow, that's intense, boy. That is intense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, I want to switch gears a little bit on you here and ask you about deep fakes. They have gotten to the point where they're more easily accessible and they're pretty daggone good anymore. With that, Can you ever be 100% safe online anymore? Because someone can literally snatch your image or video of you and create a you in an alternative uh, web space.
2: Absolutely. It's both from a pursuit of the science, immensely fascinating, and from the implications to privacy, immensely terrifying the advances we've seen in things like deepfakes and AI. There are a lot of efforts going on in, I would say, the defensive side of that. So I don't want to be an Intel cheerleader, but just as an example, you know, Intel has recently released a bunch of deepfake detection capabilities where we're able to, with a pretty high precision rate, something in the 90%, right, look at these and identify whether or not this is a deepfake, called deepfake detect, because anything made synthetically will always have those breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite right. And so there are advances being made to try and identify that this was in fact synthetic data and not real. Now is the average person going to be capable of identifying that? Like absolutely not. <laughs> no. And even if somebody tech savvy used deep fake detect, right. And identify that this was a deepfake, you know, how are you going to get it off the internet? Right. How are you going to alert the masses mm-hmm. that this, isn't legitimate and so it becomes this huge swirl of just misinformation and what are the trusted sources out there and how do you trust on the internet the answer is there's just <laughs> you have to trust your source right so take everything with a grain of salt because even the sources that are trying to be trustworthy they can be fake they can be fake um mm-hmm. And so, you know, is your, your original question, of is there any such thing as being safe on the internet? There's no such thing as a secure device. There's no such thing as secure software. Like it is, it is always just a matter of how much time and money somebody wants to put in to do the wrong thing.
0: Uh, yeah. um, you Determ- can
2: always manipulate digital systems, mm-hmm. but some things are a lot harder to do, right? And so you talk about nation Level of funding and sophistication, or are we talking about something a teenager, a curious teenager, right, can do in their garage? So that level of sophistication changes,
0: right, yeah.
1: for sure. Yeah. So you've already given us some of these these tips, but like outside of the business world, for people who are doing their own, you know, cybersecurity pr- protection, I would say, what are some things that all of us everyday people can do better uh, to practice cybersecurity? And so. I know you named a couple of them, but if we can kind of just give people a few tips to hold on to.
2: Yeah, yeah, some of the stuff I sprinkled through. So I actually didn't mention two-factor authentication, but I will mention it now because it's one of the strongest things you can do. So two-factor, you'll see it written as 2FA, means anytime you try to access something, it should be something you know and something you have. And the idea is your password is something you know, but somebody else could steal that. They could guess it. So the something you have is the piece that then becomes your backup. So for my email account, right, when I turn on two-factor, what it means is I get a text message after I enter the correct password. So if someone enters the correct password because they've stolen it from me, as long as they have not also stolen my phone, they're not able to get in, and in fact, that acts as a, a flag to me, right? If I see a two-factor notification from Gmail, and I did not just try to sign in, that actually right there tells me somebody has my password, I should go change it. But I have confidence that they didn't get in because they don't have my phone. So two-factor is an immensely powerful tool, but it's inconvenient, right? Some people don't like the fact that they have to go get their phone and get a text message, or they have to carry a little dongle around, right, that shows a rotating number on it. Mm -hmm. But two-factor is immensely strong, and anything you're worried about, like a bank account or your email accounts, they all support two-factor, and you should absolutely turn it on. Uh, The second one I mentioned earlier was around privacy, and if you are not the type of person who appreciates things spying on you or wants you know your all your search ads to be tracked through things like cookies. And I mentioned I'll, I'll mention two browsers. One is called Brave, which is a privacy is their main value proposition. They were literally built with the idea of security and privacy in mind. So it's a browser that specifically it blocks tracking cookies on any website you go to. And it does all sorts of checking to make sure any kind of encryption that they're using on that website is authentic. And it will warn you if it detects something that's not secure or not an authentic version of a, we call it a certificate, but you can think of it as basically saying that basically the crypto they're using or the cryptography is not valid. And if it's not, you shouldn't do anything sensitive on that website. So brave will do that. Mm-hmm. There's also another one called duck, duck, go, same kind of thing. It's built with privacy and security in mind. So replacing your browser, or at the very least, if you love Chrome, right, install the DuckDuckGo or the Brave plugin. Mm-hmm. And it'll give you some of that functionality and in your current browser. It's stronger to use their browser, but you can still get some of it if you have your favorite browser. And then the last is you're, gri- you're given permission in so many of these things. When you install apps on your computer, when you install apps on your phone, the operating systems are now strong enough to give you the right of refusal to say, do you want this app to do this thing? Make smart choices, right? That is your opportunity to stop a malicious app from doing something on your phone. But the truth is once you say yes, well, you've given it access, right? Your phone won't prevent that because you've told it that it's okay for it to harvest that data Uh, from your phone so make those informed decisions on when you are granting access to things security is the thing that enforces it and gives you the option right but you choosing privacy and saying no when it makes sense you know that's actually uh you are getting the keys to the kingdom right use them wisely
1: yeah yeah it reminds me of uh the episode i don't know if you watched lost boys when uh, yeah, they, Sam invited the vampire, head vampire into the house, like if he just said you, you're invited, he wouldn't have come in. So then they would have solved the problem and wouldn't have had a vampire in their house. So <laughs> I feel that so closely with what you're talking about with inviting people in to take your privacy away. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that, Stephanie. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more from you and kind of watch your journey?
2: So the best way is to connect with me on LinkedIn So if you want to see what I'm up to, I like to write various articles. I speak at places, podcasts, all that sorts of stuff. I'm working on a book, right, that probably be out next year. But any of that stuff, um, LinkedIn is the main area where I share my thoughts and what I'm working on. So it's the best way to follow and connect.
1: Awesome. So we will actually link your LinkedIn in our liner notes so that people can connect with you. So this has been I so incredibly it. enlightening, Stephanie. I mean, you've actually educated me on things because yeah. I think I was getting cybersecurity and privacy mixed up as well. So I'm very glad that you were able to come and give us some more insights on how to think through this and how to protect ourselves. And I'm afraid
0: to pick up my phone now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, Brian, how can people connect with us on the podcast?
0: Yeah, We'd appreciate if you would uh, like and follow us on Facebook. And you can also email us if you have any questions at enbwpodcast at gmail.com.
1: All right. Well, that is our episode for today. We thank Stephanie again for yeah. being here and thank sharing you. this knowledge with us. And then we'll see you all next time. Have a great day. See you. Bye.